Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Climbing aboard, I marvel at how deep the cavity of the boat is. The millet bags, four feet long and one foot thick, are piled to the boat's brim. This program features the work of 2012 writer Kaya Chesson. Curator Sean Wong spoke with her in an interview. Tell me the story about how you decided to go to Africa and, and why. And it's, of course, subject of some of your <laughs> writing, too. Right. I was at the University of Washington, and uh, I had been taking some anthropology classes there. And uh, I was inspired by those, and I decided to just go to Africa on my own. I went through the, the Middle East, too. So I started up in Israel, actually, and hopped down to Morocco and traveled through Mali and overland across Burkina Faso in, you know, a truck with goats <laughs> and, uh, and then ended up in Ghana for a month as well. When you started on this trip, when did it start to change? What were my ambitions going into it, and right. how and then, did it change? And then of course, you know, as you're on the trip, you mm -hmm. start to learn things. And well, I think when when I got to Mali, when I set foot in sub-Saharan Africa, was when I really started to realize how alone I was. I was thousands of miles from anyone I knew at all or who could look out for me, uh, who I could call if I got into trouble. <laughs> so in that way, it was isolating and it was liberating. And I just remember something switched then where I, I felt really on my guard. I was, you know, looking out for myself. And, and I did journal every night. I spent a lot of time with my notebook when I was on that trip. Uh, and the people I met along the way would always, they would always make fun of me and say, why are you learning all the time? <laughs> because for them, you know, when you're writing, it's for, for a lot of these people, it was related to school. And of course, for me, it was just documenting. And I'm so glad I did, because when I got back, I had this documentation of some of these memories and details that I wouldn't have remembered otherwise. Now we'll hear a selection from Kaya's live reading. I have a story here that uh, it's actually about some time I spent in Mali. Um, and as some of you know, there's uh, it, it was relatively stable while I was there, but there's a coup going on now. And I've been getting frantic emails from a friend I have there uh, saying that he's trying to get to his village up north um, because the city's overrun with militants. So I'd like to dedicate this to him. It's called To Timbuktu and Back or how I never made it to the fabled city. According to the guidebook, the quickest way to reach Timbuktu is to rent an SUV or a speedboat. But in an adventurous spirit, perhaps a foolish one, I've chosen another means. The ship I'm waiting to board is an industrial vessel used to transport millet. Willing passengers can ride above the grain as well, nested like birds on enormous burlap eggs. The boat itself is a hundred feet long and low to the water, painted in colorful ornate patterns. 
For obvious reasons, a ride above millet is the least expensive means of travel, a more pressing concern as my stash of CFR bills dwindles by the day. But more importantly, it's how most locals commute. I came to Mali to meet people and experience culture, and I know I won't do either from the air-conditioned confines of an all-terrain vehicle. Moreover, spending a few days on the water sounds peaceful. Because the river is low this time of year, the journey will be more difficult. Unlike a four-hour sprint on a motorboat, our trip, I'm told, will take three days. Climbing aboard, I marvel at how deep the cavity of the boat is. The millet bags, four feet long and one foot thick, are piled to the boat's brim. In the ship's center is a clearing with a miniature gas stove. In the rear of a boat, a grapefruit-sized hole deposits directly into the river below, a means for passengers to relieve themselves. Only a few millet bags block the view of this area from the rest of the cabin. Dreading the moment, I will inevitably have to visit the area myself. I select the bags toward the rear of the kitchen area and sit waiting in the crisp morning air as the other passengers file in. We depart four hours behind schedule. Not bad for what I've experienced of Molly's timekeeping habits. The boatsmen help to ease the ship from shore, wading up to their chests in the river, or standing on the boat's edge, using long wooden poles to impale the river bottom, thrusting us forward. To each side of me are other travelers. With my khakis and wide-brimmed hat, I'm far from blending into this crowd. A group of women nearby wear tailored dresses made of bright print material. A little girl hops excitedly from one woman's lap to the next. As she becomes aware of my presence, she sees an opportunity to placate her curiosity and reaches to pinch my pink skin with her tiny coffee bean fingers. The women laugh. Khadija, they say, scolding her by name. We're on the open water now. In the distance is a village which I can conceal entirely with the tip of my thumb. At the river's edge, naked children gaze boatward between bouts of splashing one another. Several women bend over bright plastic buckets of laundry and soap suds. One woman lifts her pail, pouring her laundry water back into the river. A small boat is sent with a couple crewmen to the shore as we grow nearer. When they return, one of the men holds a bouquet of live chickens, upside down and held by their spindly legs. On board, he breaks their tiny necks with his fingers. For a few moments, the passing current is dappled white and red. One of the younger women is cooking to pay her way upriver, and does so with an infant strapped to her back. Reaching over the side of the boat, she dips a large pot into the brown water. Remembering the hole in the back of the boat, the chicken carnage, the soiled laundry, I watch to make sure the, the water boils thoroughly. But even as bubbles begin to form, I fear slightly for my own mortality. My fears aside, rice made of river water will be our only food for the next several days. Our rice lunch is flavored with bouillon cubes, and a few bits of chicken parts are allotted to each bowl. We scoop the food into our mouths with our fingers. Khadija picks up a fistful and smears it across her mouth. The women laugh, and I laugh too, sharing in what universal humor there is in a child with food on her face. Soon after lunch, Khadija falls asleep in someone's wide-skirted lap. The hours lap slowly on the river. The landscape to either side of us is flat and covered in dry brush. A herd of long-horned cattle promenades beside us, wading across the shallow bank in a long procession. Their eyes are fixed forward, paying our massive ship no attention. Every so often, as we pass another village, children run from some invisible place, yelling and pointing towards us. 
At night, I'm jolted from sleep. Someone is holding my shoulder and shaking me. I open my eyes to see two of the boatsmen standing over me, gesturing for me to move aside. Groggy and shivering in the night air, I sit up an inch off my millet sack. They heft my bed into the air, flipping it to its other side. And I watch as the crewmen continue, walking uh, and waking the other passengers one by one. Why they couldn't have done this during the daytime, or why they're flipping the millet sacks at all, I don't know. <laughs> but I do not have the words to ask. Still shivering, I try unsuccessfully to return to sleep. When the sun comes up, there's more rice and bouillon. There are malaria pills and sunscreen. Though there are people all around me, my understanding of French is minimal and my jula non-existent, so I resign myself to reading my travel guide. It feels almost farcical to read about Malian cultures <laughs> as I'm confined with these same Malians who are limited on board this boat to the monotony of daily routine. At some point, we dock at another village. Some of the millet has gotten wet, I'm told, and needs to dry on the shore. Pour combien de temps séché? I ask the burliest of women with the best French I can muster. How long to dry? <laughs> the woman laughs and shakes her head. Je ne sais pas tu babu, she says in a mixture of French and jula. I don't know, white lady. <laughs> in truth, I appreciate that Malians seem to be able to talk about race openly without inhibition. It's not always this way in the States, for example. For example, I once mentioned to a Malian friend that I would never in a million years yell out, hey, black man, to a stranger on the street. <laughs> My friend had expressed surprise and wanted to know why not. In the village, children come running and freeze a few feet from where I stand. Eventually, two of the older boys emerge from the crowd, each clutching the arm of a smaller, pale-skinned girl. As they near where I'm standing, the boys shove the girl in my direction before retreating back into the crowd of children. The little girl stares up with faded blue eyes, her pupils weakly fluttering from side to side. Like the other girls in the village, she wears an oversized t-shirt, a wrapped skirt, and rubber flip-flop sandals. Her tight platinum curls, like their black ones, are pearled, pulled back in tiny braids. I realize, seeing her up close for the first time, that she is albino. The girl trembles, paralyzed. She cannot be older than seven or eight. Confounded, I can think only to drop to her eye level and offer a hesitant smile hoping to make my strange appearance less threatening. My surprise passes, and anger seeps in. I'm angry at the two boys, who've tossed her like a toy to a stranger. And I'm angry at the mob of children who do nothing but look from a safe distance. The girl's eyes continue to flutter, and remembering the second pair of sunglasses in my backpack, I take the ones on my own face and place them on hers. The glasses are too big and slide down over her nose. She looks behind for a clue from the other children. But suddenly, one of the boys comes skulking out of the crowd. Catching this, the girl's face crumples and she shoots me an apologetic glance before darting in the opposite direction. The boy breaks into a sprint behind her and the other children are close to follow. 
My first thought is to chase after them, but in an instant they've vanished behind rows of mud-walled homes. I look around for an adult to intervene, but realize once again that I do not have the first idea of how to communicate the situation. I don't even know the girl's name. At a loss, I sit on a rock and gaze out at the river. Although I'm traveling by myself in this country, I've rarely been truly alone. However, every once in a while, I do feel hopelessly, frightfully, uncontrollably alone. Now, cursing my feelings of powerlessness to help this girl, of helplessness in being immobilized in my journey upriver, and parched to speak in a language I understand, I'm as lonely as I've ever been. The millet bags are still spread out across the shore and my friends across their blanket. I manage to inquire again about when we'll be leaving, but no one seems to know. We wait in silence until dusk, before the boatsmen begin to haul the now dry grain back on board. As we disembark, I can make out the faces of a few children who have come galloping down to the shore to wave us away. Among them is one of the boys, gesturing vigorously, a pair of sunglasses on his face. <laughs> the third day aboard the ship, I fall in and out of sleep all afternoon. How far are we? I ask the women. About halfway, they tell me with their hands. This was supposed to be a three-day journey. At night, I'm awoken by boatsmen again, and again I shift my cold, aching body from one unforgiving sack to another. On our fourth day on the water, we get stuck. The river is low, and our boat has become implanted in its soggy floor. We must lighten our load. The men usher as many passengers as they can onto two wooden rafts. I take a seat next to a middle-aged man. After we greet each other cordially, he points to a bright plastic watch on my wrist and then points to himself. Donne-le-moi, he says. Give it to me. Taken back by his request, I shake my head no. He points now to my water bottle. Donne-le-moi, he says again, revealing several missing teeth with his still wide grin. Again, I shake my head. Now, he points to my sunglasses, the spare pair I've found since giving my others to the village girl. No, I say, annoyed by his persistence. For two uncomfortable hours, we sit next to one another, staring out at the current that cannot carry us. The boat is finally freed in time for our dinner of rice and bouillon. In the morning of the fifth day of our voyage, I habitually disinfect a bottle full of river and take a giant swig, washing down the medication I take daily to ward off malaria. It's only when my stomach begins to churn shortly after that it dawns on me the grave error I have made taking my pills before breakfast. Without food, the medicine grips my insides like a vice. I look around for something to put in my stomach that might ease my discomfort, but I've long since finished the crusty baguette, the only food I've brought from the city. I find some Pepto-Bismol in my bag and pop a couple pink wafers, but the pain only intensifies. Doubled over, I taste something sweet and acidic in the back of my throat, and am barely able to lurch over the side of the ship before a cascade of pink emerges. As I rest there, bowed over, my stomach feels better all at once, and in the same moment, I decide that I must get off this boat. Malad, I tell the boatsmen, rubbing my belly. 
sick. Within the hour, a couple of local fishermen arrive on their canoe to escort a tired, sore, homesick Tubabu to the nearest village. I bid a weary adieu to the group of women and to little Khadija, to the boatsman, to the man who asked me for my watch. I feel fortunate to be able to simply opt out of this journey. I have no way of knowing whether the millet boat would take another day or another five days to arrive in Timbuktu, but what I do know is that no one else will likely abandon ship before reaching our destination. The other passengers all seem to be going to Timbuktu either for family or to make money, and unlike me, traveling this way because they truly cannot afford something faster. My reasons for travel are less important. To see a place I've only heard of be able to say I'd been to Timbuktu and back. On land, I make plans to hitch a vehicle the rest of the way. I do not yet know that the daily passenger van to Timbuktu will not show up that day. I do not yet know that the only vehicle to pass through town the day after will be traveling in the opposite direction. And feeling my time in Mali fall away like sand in an hourglass, I will take it. The trip that took five days by shipping vessel will take four hours in the other direction. And the city of legends will, to this humbled wanderer, forever remain just that. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2012 curator of this program is Sean Wong. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are C.J. Lazenby, Tom Stiles, and Mo Preventure. Narrator is Alyssa Keen. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by Rachel Matthews, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>